All right, well, I want to encourage you to turn to John chapter 4, uh, John chapter 5, uh, in our series on the Gospel of John. This, we're going to talk about this week about the ultimate relationship. The ultimate relationship. This is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Well, I, I love reading biographies, and uh, this past month I've I read two, uh, one about C.S. Lewis and the Inklings, the famous writing group that C.S. Lewis sponsored, another one by Winston Churchill. And uh, I don't know why I read both of these two, one right after the other, but I was fascinated by one thing that was common to both. Both of these men had serious wounds with respect to their fathers. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, his dad was, uh, was just, he was, a, he was not a good father. Uh, Winston Churchill's dad became the leader of the House of Commons and finance minister in 1886. He was 37 years old and he seemed like he was destined for, for greatness. But he made a series of really stupid decisions and bad mistakes and he was uh, progressively sidelined. Young Winston grew up with everything you could possibly want in the 1800s. He had horses and animals and toys and, and more toys and really cool things. Um, but here's what he didn't have. He did not have a warm connection with his father. Uh, he was way, raised by servants and nurses. He said he never, ever had a family dinner with his parents until he was 13 years old. He said that he hardly connected with his mom or his dad because that's the way things were back then. And when Winston Churchill got into, got into, uh, into his schooling, his father wrote this to him. He said, you should be ashamed of yourself. I've never received a good report from any headmaster or tutor about you. Do not think that I am going to take the trouble of writing you long letters after every failure you commit. No, I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you say. You will likely become a social wastrel. You will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, futile existence. You will have to bear all the blame for such misfortunes. How's that for a letter? How's that for a letter? Absolutely brutal. Churchill had a father wound. C.S. Lewis, very similar. C.S. Lewis's father was named uh, Albert. And uh, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis uh, lost his mother at the age of nine. And Albert just crumpled under the grief, did not know how to raise his kids. And over the course of his life, he, kinda des he descended into kind of a small-minded, obsessive compulsiveness. And Albert drove both his sons crazy. Warney and C.S. Lewis absolutely drove them crazy with, with bizarre little things that he would say. When Lewis was severely wounded in World War I, his father wouldn't even cross from Ireland over to the England in order to see him. And when Lewis's father died. Lewis said this, my father is dead. I have deep regrets about all my relations with my father. C.S. Lewis, like Winston Churchill, had a father wound, deep pain.
because of what happened in their relationship. And that's why John 5, 16 through 30 is so amazing and so encouraging because Jesus gives a picture of the most perfect relationship ever between a father and a child. This is a unique passage. I can't think of any place else in the Gospels where Jesus so explicitly describes his relationship with the Father. Um, and I, I kind of feel, feel like when we, when we peer into this section, we're peering into this intimate portrait of how Jesus loved his Father and how the Father loved Jesus the Son. So we're going to do three things this morning. We're going to see what Jesus said about his relationship with his Father. Then we're going to look at five snapshots of what that was like, and we'll see how we can be changed in light of this. And I hope to inspire you both with a, to a better relationship with the Father, but also to take this relationship father to son and apply it in your relationships um, with the people that you, that you are in love with. Um, so here's Jesus' claim. And believe me, if you were there, this claim would have seemed jaw-dropping and astonishing. 5.16, Jesus answered them. Now, remember what happened. Jesus had just healed a man who had been paralyzed for four decades, 38 years to be precise. He just healed this man, and he told the guy, pick up your mat and start walking. Well, that was a problem because it was the Sabbath. And to roll up your mat and pick it up and, wa and, and walk with it was against what the Pharisees said was proper on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said, hey, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the guy who had been healed said, that guy. It's Jesus who told me to do that. And so now the Pharisees are after Jesus, trying to, trying to get to him because he's telling people to violate the Sabbath. Now Jesus is offering his defense, and the way he offers his defense is to talk about God the Father. He says, the fa my Father is working until now, and I am working. Ten words, an astonishing statement that made the jaws of the Pharisees drop in amazement. Here's why. Genesis chapter 1 portrays God creating the world out of nothing. It's 31 verses of beauty and God the Father being amazing in his the way he flings the galaxies out into outer space, God the Son and the way that he speaks the universe into existence. By the time creation is complete, God pronounces it not just good, but very good. When creation is fully formed and bursting with all this potentiality, God rests, meaning God takes up residence in the universe he's created as the Lord and the Master. It's a beautiful picture of the power of, of God. Now, what does God do then? Well, we know what he does. He, he, he rests. And what that meant for the Pharisees in the first century, they believed that God, that meant God's resting meant he sustained the universe moment by moment. So when God rests, it means he sustains the universe in a moment by moment way. Just like God created the universe effortlessly, he sustains the universe effortlessly. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, 
all the Pharisees were there realized, oh my gosh, Jesus is saying that he is sustaining the universe moment by moment just like God, the God of the universe is sustaining the universe moment by moment. He's saying he's the creator. He's saying he is the sustainer. He's saying he's in such a close relationship with God that they're, they're working in tandem. Totally radical for the Pharisees. I was trying to think of an illustration that might capture this. So imagine this. Imagine a tornado ripping through Bartlesville. It comes right up US 75, Washington Boulevard. It takes a left turn and it's bearing down your block. You see the houses off in the distance being destroyed, the tornadoes coming your way. Then you see a neighbor standing on his porch and he's got, he's got a controller for a video game and he's got a joystick on the controller and he's, and he's moving the tornado back and forth. He moves it out down the street so that more houses don't get hit. He moves it out into a field and he makes the tornado disperse out in the field. You would say, what in the world? <laughs> what, how, how did you... How did you possibly do that? And this person says, God the Father and I protect Bartlesville from tornadoes. It, it, that would just be shocking to you. Like you, you, you would have, it'd be hard to process. That's how the Pharisees are feeling when Jesus says, the fa uh, the, my Father is working until now and I am working. Totally amazing, totally shocking. Jesus does not stop there. Not only does he claim to co-labor with God, but he claims that God is his father. That was equally astonishing. See, when you, when you claim that you have a father, what you're saying is, we're part of the same family. Here's my dad. Here's me. We're part of the same family. When Jesus is claiming that God is his father, it's a little bit different. What Jesus is saying is, my father, he's God, and I share deity with my father. This is a claim to share godness, a claim to share deity with the father. We are of the same essence, deity. So without using the word, Jesus is talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and a co-eternal relationship. As you can imagine, the Pharisees are totally freaking out, and they are fit to be, to be tied. Here's the thing that these verses don't say, but we know is true from history. Some of the Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew when Jesus claimed this, that he was who he claimed to be. They knew he was the Messiah. Well, why didn't they accept him? Because to accept him as the Messiah meant that they would have to give up their power. They would have to give up their money, their authority. They'd have to give up their power. And so now they're moving toward, they're saying, no way. And they're moving in now to reject him. Now, let me give you a quick takeaway before we, we move on to Jesus' Jesus' descriptions um, about, 
about love. When you face opposition, I think it's a really good idea to have a brief, quick statement that you can make in the moment that states your relationship with Christ. Here are 10 words. Jesus is under pressure. He states 10 words under pressure to identify who he is in his relationship with God. Quick one-sentence statement that now is going to invite discussion. This is a wonderful statement. It's an I statement. My father is working until now, and I am working. It's an I statement. Um, it's 10 words. You don't glaze over because there's just so many, so many words coming out. I think we can do the same thing. When you, when you and I face opposition, it's great if you've got a short, quick, maybe 10-word statement you can make that identifies you as a follower of Christ. Uh, I can't give you an airtight formula on how to do this uh, because it really depends upon the sphere in which you work. It's going to be different for people in the corporate world than if you're a small business owner. It's going to be different for people in the medical field than if you are working with uh, people in the public schools. It's going to be different. But if you can craft a short statement that identifies you as a follower of Christ, I think that's a great way to open up discussion. Uh, you may, may remember who won the Super Bowl? Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know how much you know about the, what's happened with the Eagles, but there are many, many followers of Christ on the Eagles team. And there are YouTube clips of various members of the Philadelphia Eagles being baptized in a makeshift baptismal pond because so many Philadelphia Eagles players were coming to Christ and engaging in prayer both before and after the games. Now, one of the reasons why this happened was because there were followers of Christ on the Philadelphia Eagles team who had short, quick statements identifying them as followers of Christ that opened up discussion and it caused an atmosphere of openness to take place uh, in that Eagles organization. I've never been an Eagles fan because I'm a Dallas Cow Cowboys fan. Yeah. A and yet, you know, I was pretty amazed at, to hear about what's happened um, spiritually on that Eagles team. Okay, so Jesus starts off claiming to be the co-creator of the universe with the Father and sharing the essence of divinity. That's a powerful claim. Now, we see Jesus backing up the claim. Here's where Jesus gives us a window into the depths of his relationship with the Father. Uh, we begin with verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So the first snapshot is love. You want to know the relationship between father and son? The very first snapshot is the snapshot of love. I love it that Jesus just says, just flat out, the father loves me. The father loves me. What I love about this is that Jesus doesn't just say this once in the Gospel of John. He says it four times. And he says it 
in very strategic times where Jesus is under pressure. He affirms, the Father loves the Son. I am loved. Now, you know, there's a lot of people who can't boldly say that. You can't boldly say, I'm loved by my significant, the significant people in my life because they don't feel that confidence. Maybe that lack of confidence comes from inside of themselves. Maybe it's because they're static in the relationship. This is a bold statement. The Father loves me. Um, how does Jesus know that? Well, one way that he says in these verses here is that the Father communicates with the Son. There is constant back and forth communication, Father disclosing things to the Son, Son praying back to the Father, Father and Son in a love relationship. Now, let me, let me show you the significance of this for, for you. We live in a universe that's how big? 13.5 billion light years big. That's big. And a lot of people peer off into the heavens like with the Hubble telescope. And they ask the question, what is behind this incredible universe? Like what's behind it? Is it just dark and bleak? and personless? Or is there a personality behind it? And what Jesus is saying is uh, there, there's a personality behind all that there is. There's love. There's love. What lies outside the bounds of this universe as a father and a son who love each other? What is, what is inside this universe pregnant with presence the love of the Father and the Son. Jesus is telling us that love lies at the center of the universe. We had this incredible privilege this past fall. We rented a house in the mountains outside of Seattle, and we had every single member of our family, which is hard to do because our family was all over the place. We had every member of our family in one place. There's 20 of us when we get together. That's hard for me even to believe right now. Cindy and I, four kids, spouses, their kids, 20 of us. And what was most significant for me was that there was this sense of a culture of openness, honor, love, respect. And then we had a discussion about a political matter. And we have different some different political views in our family. And that discussion was gracious. It was not contentious. It was honoring. And for me as the dad, to hear that discussion take place made, filled me with gratitude because that culture of love and honor permeated that house. When Jesus says, the Father loves the Son, he's making a profound claim about reality. Love lies at the center of the universe. Then we see a second snapshot, and the second snapshot is power. Verse 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Verse 20, greater works than these will he show him 
so that you, <coughs> you might marvel. The Father loves to support the mission of the Son. One of the things I hugely appreciate about my, my Father is that he has been supportive of my mission in life. My, my dad is a, a very accomplished person. Um, and my dad really, really pursues excellence. But my father has always been warmly supportive of me. When I told him I was going to ask Cindy to marry me, he was very supportive. When I told him that I was going to go to graduate school, and would he help me? <laughs> he was very supportive. When I told him we were headed to Bartlesville to plant Grace Community Church, he was really supportive. Had to look at it on a map. Not, not really. He, uh, he was in the Army in, in Lawton, Oklahoma for a while, so he knew he knew. He knew where we were headed. When my children de decided to, one of my kids decided to share the good news uh, in North Africa, my dad was very warmly supportive. Um, one of the ways that you show love is that you support the mission of another that you care about. And God the Father supports the mission of His Son with, with power. So, uh, I want you to notice uh, that this kind of support extends to you as well. God the Father loves you that same way. John 14, verse 12. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, here's the reason why the greater works of John 14 is so important. These, this verse mirrors the verse back in John 5 where God the Father is going to empower the Son to do greater works. Now the Son is going to empower you to do greater works as well. Believe me, there is no formula for what this looks like. And I'm glad. Because if there was a formula, we would be working the formula and not trusting in the, in the Lord. What is so amazing about this verse is that God wants to pour out works on you just like He poured out works on His Son as evidence of his love for you. And again, there's no formula for how this works. But it's, it's a great thing to live in the mystery that God might do through you some greater works just like he did it through his son. And some of you have done some of those greater works and you probably didn't esteem them as such. Some of you did some pretty, pretty cool things, and you took it for granted. And one of the things that I think the Lord wants us to do is to recognize, whoa, whoa, time out, that was a greater work, Lord. Thanks, thanks for helping me with that, that greater work. I remember feeling that way 20 years ago when we got back from Russia, and uh, the pastor of the church in Russia, who was 24 at the time, wrote to me on CompuServe.com. You remember CompuServe.com? An email. He said, will you send me your sermon outlines? I said, sure. I sent him sermon outlines every, every, every week. He sent them to a translation program, which was maybe a little suspect. <laughs> and then he preached those sermons in central Russia for about a year. And I thought, like, Lord, how... Like, that's incredible that that could even happen, that I could have a weekly mentoring relationship with somebody halfway around the world. 
that fits into the greater work category. And God's doing those same things through you from time to time. And you need to live in that and, and appreciate that as an example of his love. Here's the third snapshot. Authority to save. John 5, 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so too the Son will give life to whom he will. That is an amazing, an amazing thing. Look, parents show love by giving authority. When did you first give authority to your child? Can you think about that? Some of you who are old enough to, to do that. Well, what happened when you gave them an allowance? You took your money, you gave an allowance to your child, you gave them authority to spend that in a wise way. And then when else did you give authority to your child? What about the day that they turned 16 years old and they said, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? And you sh your hand shook as you handed the key to the car over to your child. Did they know how much that car cost? Did they know how much that insurance cost for the car? Did they know how much even a little fender bender costs? No. But you gave them authority to use one of the most valuable objects in your possession. When you love somebody, you progressively give them more authority. What has God the Father given Jesus the authority to do? He's given them, Jesus, the authority to provide salvation to everybody who believes. Here, God the Father created people. He loves these people. These people are fallen. And God the Father delegates the authority of the salvation of the race whom he loves to his son. That's love. When you delegate and give authority and empower somebody in that way. But it gets better. Let me read this. <clears throat> For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here's, here's a key verse here about the Father delegating salvation to the Son. Whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What's totally mind-blowing about that is that God the Father delegates the salvation of the human race to the Son, and all a member of the human race has to do to receive that salvation is to believe, transfer their trust onto the finished work of Christ. And once that happens, we now pass out of death into life that begins right now in the present. We don't wait till heaven to have eternal life. We get it immediately in the present, the moment we trust Christ. God the Father delegated the authority to save to His Son. Here's, a, here's another snapshot. The fourth snapshot is position as judge. God the Father has given judgment and delegated judgment over to God the Son. 527, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is speaking in language they understood perfectly. The son of man was a term well known in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. The son of man is the messianic leader. The son of man has the authority of the kingdom and therefore, Jesus claiming to be that Messiah has the authority 
uh, to judge. Now, at this point, the Pharisees are completely freaking out. If you were there and you could see the faces of the people listening to him, they're hard, they're stern, they're cold, they're shaking their heads vehemently, they're angry. No way are they, do they want this to be true. And that's why Jesus says, don't marvel. Updating that, he's saying, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Uh, I have the authority to call people out of their out of their tombs. I have that authority. He says this. Let me read it to you. Do not marvel at this. <clears throat> For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. By the way, the definition of those who have done good is those who have transferred their faith onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. First, John, uh, it's John 5, 24. Uh, he's saying, don't, don't, don't freak out about this. I have the authority to judge. I wonder if you knew that. Did you know that? A lot of times we, we think, think about Jesus and we think, yeah, he's a nice guy, super nice guy, super mild-mannered, you know, filled with all sorts of grace. He's not going to judge me. I'm not going to do that. It won't happen. Not, not, Jesus won't do that. Maybe, maybe the God of the Old Testament might do that, but Jesus would never do that. No, no God the Father delegated the authority of judgment to Jesus. Jesus is the judge. But if you transfer your trust onto the finished work of Christ, you've escaped all that and you have, you have life. And now we see the final snapshot. Um, God has made Jesus a conduit of life. 526, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. <clears throat> I don't have life inside me like, like God does. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he's put eternity into our heart yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I have eternity in my heart. I long for life I long for the eternal life that God would give me. I long for significance, but I got a hole in my soul. I don't have life in myself like God has life in himself. God has life in himself in the sense that he does not need anything. He is complete and full. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had a completeness, a fullness. They have life within themselves. I don't have that. I don't have that. You don't have that either. The moment you're born, you're needy. You're needy for nine months. You can't take care of yourself. You can't feed yourself. You can't take care of, of your bodily functions. Most people get into adolescence. They're growing in their ability to comprehend things. They're still needy. People get into middle age. They find out they have a middle age crisis. They're needy. Then they get into older age and they realize they're still needy. We human beings don't have life in themselves, but God does. God has life in himself. 
And God has the ability to take life and give it to you so that you have life in yourself. It's not coming from inside you in the sense that you have it innately. It's coming because the Father gives it to you. That's why John 7 is so significant where Jesus says, you know, you come to me and the Spirit inside you is going to be like a well of water welling up, granting you life. So the Father loves the Son in the sense that he gives the Son the privilege of giving life. You parents, isn't that kind of a cool thing? Like when you give birth to a child, to see that child come into the world, and you think, wow, here's a little one who sort of looks like, like me and my spouse. This is so cool. It's an amazing thing to be able to give life. God the Father has given the ability of his son to be a conduit of life. So what is, what is Jesus saying about his relationship with the Father? I'm one with the Father. I'm loved by the Father. I'm empowered by the Father. I have authority from the Father to judge and to save. I manifest the, the life of the Father. Jesus is talking about this incredibly full relationship that he has with his Father. This is the most perfect example of a father-son, father-offspring relationship that we can possibly imagine. So let's talk about how we live it out. How do we learn from the Father's love for the Son? Well, it starts with a, a lesson about, about belief. Remember back to the third snapshot I showed you. Um, you're invited into that relationship father and son have. God the Father has given his son the authority to save. And you're invited into that, into that sphere of Trinitarian love. You know, when somebody comes to Christ, part of the, part of the beauty of that coming is that I'm invited into a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that guarantees I am loved forever. That's an amazing, an amazing privilege. And so part of the lesson number one on this is, is the lesson about, about belief. Um, we are invited into the sphere of that Trinitarian love, and Jesus is our bridge to get us there. Lesson number two is a lesson about abundance. <clears throat> what is this life that he's talking about? Jesus came to give you life now and later, abundance in the present and abundance in the future. So in the last 10 years, I've had a daughter or son hand a little child to me, my grandchild. And my daughter or son will hand the child to me and say something like, here's your papa. And now I get to hold this little child. And um, what does that do for me as the dad? as the grandfather. It, it gives me incredible joy. So that's going to happen this Wednesday because our oldest daughter just had her fourth child. And my daughter's going to hand the child to me and say, there she is, little Rosemary Catherine. 
and I get to cradle her. And what's going to happen in my heart? It's going to be overflowing, overflowing with joy. So this lesson number two is a lesson about the abundance that comes when you grow in your faith in Christ and comprehend the extent of that love. Those little grandchildren don't comprehend my love for them. But boy, I sure am bursting. I'm bursting with love for them. They don't comprehend it, but I'm, I'm bursting with, with, with love for them. And part of, part of what abundance is, is Christ growing inside you like a child grows in its mother's womb. Paul said this in, in Galatians. He says, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm in labor. Paul says, I'm working, Galatians, so that Christ is formed more fully in you, more robustly in you, more completely in you. And then Paul would describe his joy when he would see that in action. And so part of what we need to see coming out of, out of this is that God takes great delight in every incremental step that you take. I hope you don't, and I know a lot of us do, I hope, hope you don't get to, get to a place where you say, oh, I'm not doing well in my faith in Christ. I'm screwing up, I'm making a lot of mistakes, got this habit. Well, you can say that, but the reality is the God of the universe who loves you unconditionally takes delight in every small incremental step of growth that you take. Now, I want you to keep on taking those steps of growth. You know, Winston Churchill's father would berate him for not doing enough. By the way, John Quincy Adams' father did the same. And the God of the universe is not like that. You know, look, as, as the grandfather, if, if, I, if I see one of my grandchildren walking and then falling, walk, do, do I go, I cannot believe you're a terrible walker. You're never going to be a good walker. Do, do I feel that? Doesn't even cross my mind. I take delight in that. Hey, you're doing good. Come on, get back up. We can make this happen. That's God and that's God in, in how he treats you. So part of the lesson of this is learning to live in the abundance of the love that the Father pours out onto you. The next lesson is a lesson about prayer, about power. It's a lesson about power. And this is a lesson <clears throat> about God empowering the Son to do greater works and God empowering you to do greater works. John 14, 12. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. You're going to do greater works. And I really think this is an invitation for us to dream a little bit about God, what God might want us to do. Here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Does, does this like invite you to dream a little bit and to say, all right, Lord, what, what works would those possibly be? It sounds miraculous. Yeah, it is. But it also sounds like there's some other things about this that I, I, need, I need to know about. Lord, help me dream about what those things would be. Get the same idea in this verse here, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It's almost like God the Father has this big bundle of good works 
and he's ready to pour these out on you. But he wants you to be a willing recipient. God has this big bundle, and he's willing to tip, tip the bundle out and have the bundle spill over into your life. But he's wanting you to have the open hands of faith. What I love about this is that the word workmanship is the Greek word for artistic creation, artistic masterpiece. He's saying you are his artistic masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're built, you're like a good works machine from the Father. You can do this. But he's asking you to take out the arms of faith to say, okay, pour them into my hand, Lord. I don't know what they might be, but I'm ready to receive them. Now, the final lesson is a lesson about, about parenting. It's about parenting. I could say a lot about this, but I want to zero it, narrow it down to one thing. I find it interesting that God the Father loves the Son, but He doesn't shield the Son from pain. God the Father has this incredible future for His Son that includes resurrection, authority, blessing, Nevertheless, God the Father is not shielding His Son in this story from persecution. That tells me that in the grand scheme of things, you can love and you can allow the person that you love to endure hardship. In fact, we learn in Hebrews that Jesus learned experientially obedience from the things that he encountered in his suffering. We as parents long for two things simultaneously with our kids. We long for strength in our kids, right? We all want them to be strong. We want them to be adults. We want them to launch well. We want strength. But we also want safety, right? We want strength and safety at the same time. And guess what? You can't have it. You can't have it. Because if I, as a parent, create such safety that my children never struggle, my children never grow strong. If I, as a parent, say, I want them strong, I want them safe, my safety prevents that strength from flourishing. If God the Father even allowed his son to go through pain to strengthen his son. Hebrews tells us that. He learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Then it's possible to observe our hardship as a place to grow strong. I grow strong in my hardship through prayer. I grow strong in my hardship by trusting God in the hardship. I grow strong in the hardship by seeing God intervene in the hardship. I grow strong in my hardship by God intervening sometimes with healing, sometimes with fresh presence, sometimes with an outpouring of His Spirit, sometimes with an outpouring of His goodness. But God the Father wants strength in us and sometimes that means he allows us to be in places where we have to struggle. You don't get the strength without the struggle. And part of God's love for us is his wisdom in knowing what kind of struggle to allow our way 
and providing us with the strength in the struggle to grow. Well, that applies to us, but it also applies to us as parents. Because as parents, you always have to think, all right, how much do I, do I, do I create boundaries here, ensuring safety? And how much do I allow my child to go out into the world and to struggle? Are there formulas for that? Nope. That's why it requires moment-by-moment moment dependence upon the God of the universe. Two men, Winston Churchill, C.S. Lewis, painful relationships with their father. They had father wounds. No father wounds with Jesus. He models the most beautifully perfect relationship that there is, father and son or by extension, father and child. And we can enter into that as well by transferring our trust onto the finished work of Christ, and if we're there, by living abundantly in that eternal life that we already have. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, we just uh, are so thankful, so grateful uh, that you are the way you are. You are our Abba Father, and you showed us what you were like as you, as you, we see Jesus interacting with you in John, John 5. Lord, may we walk forth in the abundance of the eternal life that we possess. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Are we men? Yeah! Are we warriors? Yeah! Are we man enough? Yeah! Let's do this! Yeah! Come on, boys, let's go! Are you man enough?
So 